chapter 11 of, of Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord Stands forever. You may be seated. If I were to um, take a poll, if I were to sort of do a quiz, uh, do a quick survey and kind of ask you, hey, so what was the cause? What was the reason for? What started the Protestant Reformation? Uh, My guess is that the majority of you would point to October 31st, 1517, uh, the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, Statements, objections to uh, beliefs and practices in the church. And in many ways, you would be right. Some of you perhaps might say, well, yeah, as far as events go, that's the event, but Events don't happen in a vacuum. So the reality is even behind Luther's action that day was a a greater question. And that question was, how can someone be right with God? How is it that that I, who I, a sinner, can be right before a, a holy and righteous judge who rules and reigns over all of creation. Luther's answer, of course, was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He wasn't using that phrase exactly like that, but those are the bumper stickers, three of the bumper stickers. The Catholic Church's answer, the Catholic Church at the time was basically selling salvation. You could actually go and buy indulgences and and when you dropped that coin in the coffer, some loved one was was freed from purgatory and was allowed to go uh, straight into heaven or their time in purgatory was shortened. Um, and, and so in that sense, the Catholic Church was essentially selling salvation. But underlying all of that is yet another question. And it's a deeper question. It's a more foundational question. It's the question that asks, how do you know? Who's right? And if you're going to make a judgment on who's right, 
On what grounds will you make that judgment? The, the question is the more foundational, the more sort of underlying uh, debate and conflict was really who or what is the final authority in matters of belief and how we are to live as Christians. Who or what gets to make the, the final determination uh, in terms of matters of faith and life? Is it a person? Is there, is there some guy that you can go to and, and, and get all your answers? Is it an office? Maybe it's the Pope. Maybe it's your preacher. Maybe it's an elder. Maybe it's you. Maybe you, you're saying, well, the reality is I'm my own authority. I, my own self gets to make this determination. And what the Reformation was about was none of those are true. That the, that the only rule of faith and practice, the only infallible rule of faith and life is God's Word. The Bible is our only, is our final, is our authority in terms of what we are to believe and how we are to live. The Catholic Church, of course, at the time was saying, well, okay, yeah, the Bible, but in addition to the Bible, you have to add the Pope as long as he meets certain conditions and, and says things authoritatively. And in fact, he even can't, make a mistake. He can't even be wrong in certain conditions. Tradition, I mean, that's part of it too. And the reformers were saying, no, the, the final authority, the only rule of faith and practice is to be God's Word. And that's the heart of the conflict between Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, others, and the Catholic Church in the 16th century. It becomes clearer in 1521 when uh, Luther, having already been excommunicated, he's already been kicked out of the church, is called uh, not by the Pope because he's been kicked out of the church. I guess the Pope can't actually make him do this now. But the emperor, Charles, the, Charles V, uh, and one of the Pope's sort of leading theologians, they get together and they, they make Luther come to the Diet of Worms, the Diet of Worms. Um, it's in Worms, Germany. They weren't eating worms. Um, and they make him come to answer two questions. The first question is simple. Most of Luther's works are sitting on a table and they said, are these your writings? And he kind of, yeah. Um, the second question was, will you recant? Will you take it back? Will you repent of all this sin and say, oops, no, I was wrong? And Luther's response is now famous. Unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. But the question is, one of the many questions. The question for this morning is, was he right to take that stand? What Was he right to stand on 
the authority and sufficiency of God's word and God's word alone? Is there any reasonable basis for demanding that scripture is our only rule of faith and practice? Well, in Matthew 4, Jesus has been led out into the wilderness by the Spirit. And notice what Matthew tells us in verse 1, to be tempted by the devil. When, when, when the disciples said, Jesus, teach us how to pray, do you remember what he taught them? He said, pray this, lead us not into temptation. You and I get to pray that because Jesus was led into temptation. Don't miss this. The, the Spirit is leading Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, in the flesh, out into the wilderness for the express purpose of being tempted by the devil. Now that, that had to be the case because Hebrews tells us that he's so much like us that he's fully human and and has been tempted in every way like us, yet remained without sin. But let me also just remind you that, that one of the oddities of, you know, one of the beauties of preaching through books um, is you, you always kind of know where you're going to be next week, and you always remember kind of where you've been uh, the week before, but when you're, when you're doing something topical and, and you drop down in chapter 4, you, you know, you're sitting there going, well, hold on, remind me again what happened in, in chapters 1 through 3, and do they matter? Because what you find in chapter 3 is Jesus' baptism. Jesus baptized by John, saw the Spirit like a dove descending on him, hearing the voice of the Father, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Why was Jesus baptized? What did he need to be cleansed of? If I can end the sentence in a preposition. The reality is nothing. He's sinless. He doesn't need to be cleansed of anything. But even in that act, he's identifying with us because he's about to take the place of sinners. People who are dirty, who are in need of the cleansing blood of Christ, who are in need of the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is identifying with us in his humanity. Matthew began with a genealogy and, and traced Jesus's genealogy back to King David, establishing that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. In other words, what we find in the first four chapters of, of Matthew is a savior who is fully human. Now, Matthew doesn't explain how full deity, full humanity, two natures and one person. Matthew doesn't explain how that works. He just tells us that it is so. And so when you read these first four chapters together, you're watching this newborn baby who's both a king and a priest, who's both ruler, rightful heir to the throne, but who is, is identifying with his people to be both the offerer and the offering, 
the offerer of the sacrifice and the offerer. That's a great word. I'm sure that's going to show up great in this recording. But the offerer of the sacrifice and the offering itself. And so here in chapter 4, Jesus led out into the wilderness to be tempted. And he goes 40 days and 40 nights without food. I'm just going to be honest with you. Four hours is a long time for me. Um, I had breakfast just a couple of hours ago, and I'm already looking for lunch. I mean, that's four out, much less four days, much less 40 days and nights. And, and part of the reason Matthew goes to these links to sort of identify Jesus in his humanity is to prepare us in some ways for the end of verse 2. See, we are tempted to say, well, but he's God. 40 days and 40 nights without food? I mean, technically, he hadn't eaten in eternity because he doesn't have a body. Oh, wait, he has a body. And you're reminded all over again, Jesus at the end of those 40 days and 40 nights was hungry. Jesus is fully human. Don't dismiss the temptation. Don't dismiss the fasting and and chalk it up to his deity in such a way that, well, that doesn't really matter. That doesn't really affect anything. Jesus is hungry. And so Satan naturally starts with, well, look, Jesus, here's, here's some stones. You could... Just simply speak these stones and turn them into bread. And then you could eat. And, and, and there's a part of me that goes, all right, hold on. Bread. I'm pretty sure bread's not sinful. Right? I mean, it's not a sin to eat bread. And it's not a sin to eat breakfast. It's not a sin to eat lunch. It's not a sin... To eat supper. I mean, eating isn't sinful and, and bread isn't. So what Satan is offering Jesus isn't in itself as bread is not wrong. Except that Satan's offering it. And he's asking Jesus to trust in someone other than his father. He's asking Jesus to take matters into his own hands and to... You know, stop trusting in the Father and instead just fix your problem. How often do we face situations in life and think, well, because this opportunity is in front of me and it's not sinful, I have to take it. I have to do it. I have to follow through with it. Here, though bread, though eating, neither of those is automatically inherently sinful. Jesus rebuffs Satan's offer because he will not trust in anyone other than the Father. And notice how Jesus resists temptation. It is written. And then he quotes the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't written yet. Jesus is living the New Testament at this point. 
Matthew wasn't written yet. There's no Romans. There's no, and so he's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Deuteronomy. I wonder how many of us could quote Deuteronomy. Okay, beyond the fact that there's the uh, Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord is one, right, frontlets, doorposts, talk about it all the time. There's that. There's a retelling of the Ten Commandments. How many of us could quote portions of Deuteronomy? And so Jesus, when faced with temptation, sees as his defense against Satan, though he is the Word of God incarnate. And John 1 tells us that All things were created by him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is involved in creation. Here, he's the Word of God incarnate in the flesh, says, let me lean on the written Word of God as my authority, as my only rule of faith and practice. And so he quotes the Bible back to Satan. This is the same Jesus who in just a couple of years is going to tell a storm to stop and it's going to stop. This is the same Jesus who in not too much longer is going to visit the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus who's been in that tomb for three days and tell him to come back from the dead and he's going to do it. Imagine having that authority and saying, I'm going to lean on the written word of God as my only rule of faith and practice. The written Old Testament was authoritative enough for even Jesus himself to submit to it. Of course, he uses this phrase, it is written. And notice every single time. We see it in verse 3. We see it again uh, in verse 7. We see it again in verse 10. Jesus submits to the written word of God as his rule of faith and practice. Okay, technically, that's his whole life. That's his his whole ministry, right? He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And think of the times when you read in Jesus' life that something happened, and then you get this phrase, this was to fulfill by the pro- what was said by the prophets. In many ways, Jesus' whole earthly life and ministry is an outworking of the written word of God. It's His authoritative rule for defending himself against the schemes of the devil. Perhaps you and I would do well to know the word better than we do. That we too might not just know facts and know information and be able to recount and recite verses or even to win sword drills, but so that we might be able to withstand the arrows of the evil one. When faced with temptation, we too can say, it is written, 
and then quote the Bible right out loud if you have to to defend yourself against sin and temptation. But why is the Bible sufficient? If, if, if we see even in Jesus' own life that the Bible is His rule of faith and practice, why is the Bible sufficient? Why would Jesus quote the Old Testament as His rule of faith and life? Why should we do that? Well, let me take you to a couple of passages. I told you not to put your Bibles away. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We read uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you, and this is Paul, Silas, Timothy writing to the church in Thessalonica, that when you received the word of God, you which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Just turn over a couple of pages to Second Timothy chapter 3. A, a passage that's probably more familiar to most of you. Second Timothy 3 uh, verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That, that word breathed out by God is a made-up word. Paul created a word on the fly. He took the Greek word for God and the Greek word for breath and put them together and, and made a new word that said God breathed. It's been literally breathed out by God. Turn to Second Peter chapter 1. Second uh, Peter 1 verse 19. Uh, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture uh, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These passages are all pointing out the fact that the Bible isn't a man-made book. It's not like a bunch of guys got together, sat around a campfire a couple of nights, you know, went out camping in the woods and, and just started telling stories and wrote them down and said, let's call this the Bible. It's God's very word to his people. So when you're asked who wrote Philippians, well, Paul and the Holy Spirit. Who wrote Revelation? Well, John and the Holy Spirit. It's literally God's word. And so because God is speaking to us in His Word, then it can't be wrong. He can't make mistakes. And it is, therefore, our only rule of faith and practice. Because it's God's Word, it's true. Remember when Jesus prayed, sanctify them by 
the truth. Your word is truth. The Bible is our only rule of faith and practice because it's God's word and because it's God's word, it is true. Everything in it is true. Now, let me make this observation. Everything in the Bible is true, but not everything that's true is in the Bible. Before you get nervous. There's nothing in the Bible about transporting human beings from this earth to our moon. And yet there are people around here that do that kind of stuff all the time. There's nothing in the Bible that says anything about the force required to leave the earth's atmosphere and how long is it going to take and what trajectory and how exactly are we going to hit Mars when we decide to do that? Because that's next. That's not... The Pythagorean theorem isn't in the Bible. Everything in the Bible is true, but not everything that's true is automatically, is necessarily in the Bible. All truth, of course, is God's truth. Everything necessary for salvation, everything necessary for faith and life are taught in Scripture. And they're taught clearly enough that even the ordinary believer can understand it. The Bible then is our only infallible rule of faith and practice. Some of you may object. Well, hold on, time out. We're in a PCA church. Y'all like to talk about the Westminster Confession of Faith a lot. And for that matter, we've actually been using the Shorter Catechism as our affirmation of faith uh, all year long. And we'll continue to do so until we finish. Why would we say sola scriptura? Why would we say the Bible alone is our infallible rule of faith and practice? And then turn around and quote this 17th century document. I remember being asked when I was uh, being ordained, when I was on the floor of Presbytery, and the people in, in Presbytery get to ask you questions. You've already gone through a committee, and they've asked you a bunch of questions, and then, and then you're standing there in front of this room full of pastors and elders, and they get to ask you questions. One of them, uh, a history professor at um, uh, Greenville Theological Seminary, asked um, what I thought was a very basic question. I was a little surprised. Uh, why study history and i mean i think the answer is fairly straightforward like I, I didn't think like i was sort of i felt like the answer was easy enough that i was nervous i was getting it wrong um because those who don't learn from history are failed to repeat it are doomed to repeat it man-made documents like the confession like the catechism are only helpful insofar as they accurately describe and teach what the Bible teaches. And you know what? We've actually changed the confession. We've never changed the Bible. We're not going to change the Bible. We can't change the Bible. But we can change the confession. We can change the catechism. We're not saying that creeds and confessions aren't helpful. We're saying they're only helpful insofar as they are accurate uh, uh, te accurately teaching what the Bible teaches. 
It's God's word alone that is our only infallible rule of faith and practice that accurately, rightly reveals God's will for our salvation. Let me make a a few, a handful of applications um, from these passages. Um, The first is this. The Bible clearly teaches our need for a Savior. The Bible clearly teaches that we have been made in His image, have rebelled against that creation, rebelled against uh, God who made us, that we're guilty of sin, and that there is a free offer of the gospel that we can trust in Christ, turn in faith to Him, believe the gospel, repent and believe, and we will be saved. And we're even promised that those who come to Christ in faith, no one, nothing can ever snatch us out of God's hand. That might be the message you need more than anything this morning. The Bible clearly teaches from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, our need for a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior. A second application. Because the Bible is our only infallible rule of faith and practice, and because the Bible is complete and has been finished and closed and done, we're not looking for a voice from God to tell us what to do. We're not looking for, God told me to do this. He may have told you, but if He did, He told you in His Word. Yes, the Spirit might be at work bringing verses, bringing ideas, directing, guiding, but He's not speaking new revelation to you. We're not looking for God to speak verbally to us. Those days, as Hebrews 1 tells us, have ceased. A third application. If the Bible is our only rule of faith and practice, then perhaps we should be more committed to knowing it and studying it and understanding it than we are to CNN and Fox News and the latest ADPH numbers. Perhaps we should be more committed to knowing and understanding it. If this really is God speaking to us, His people, perhaps we should be more committed to knowing it and understanding it and believing it. If you were given a paper on how to end COVID-19 and you were the only one with that paper, you'd read it. How much more the book explaining life forevermore. A fourth application sort of connected to that. If you look back in Matthew 4, something changes from temptation 1 to temptations 2 and 3. Satan was a rather quick learner. Satan says, hey, there's rocks, turn them into bread, you're hungry. Jesus quotes the Bible. Satan says, ha, now I got him. I can quote the Bible too. 
and use it wrongly. Perhaps not just knowing and understanding His Word, but knowing it in such a way that we can correct the errors of people around us, that we can speak to those who can say, well, I can quote a verse that says this, and then we can come along and say, well, but it's also written this, and show them the error, the mistake in their use of Scripture. Just because someone says the Bible says doesn't mean they're understanding that Bible correctly. Satan quotes the Bible twice in Matthew 4 and uses the passages wrongly. A fifth application, I think, that's where I am. Um, This has implications for Grace Covenant. Uh, not just as individuals, but for us as a church. Uh, And that is our ministry will focus on and be grounded in a ministry of the Word. Grace Covenant's job, the work of our church, will be grounded in and founded on the truth of Scripture. And connected to that, one last application uh, this has this doctrine of scripture alone has implications for our worship. Uh, the Bible tells us what belongs in worship. The Bible tells us to read the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, preach the Bible, see the Bible in the sacraments. Uh, the reason we don't dance in worship is because there's no command for dancing in worship. Uh, the re- the reason we don't whatever there's all sorts of things we don't. Because there's no command for that in Scripture. What we do in worship is our understanding of what Scripture has said. This is what belongs in the worship of the church. Our worship is guided by, framed by, rooted in the revealed will of God. May God grant us the grace to be people of His word, people of the book. Let's pray together.